0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We began last week to look at the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we'll conclude looking at that portion of God's Word this morning. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Please give your attention to God's Word. Nicodemus said to him, to Jesus, How can these things be? But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As I was growing up, my parents, they were older when I was born. And so from earlier generations, they had a number of odd, old-fashioned sayings that have stuck with me all my life. For instance, if I left a door open when I came into the house, my mother would say to me, were you born in a barn? Or if I was doing a chore around the house and I wasn't working hard enough, my dad would say, use a little elbow grease. If I left food on my plate at the end of the meal, my mom would say, well, I guess your eyes were bigger than your stomach. And then often when I went to bed, they would say, Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. And one more that I often think about when I'm looking around the house for something and can't find it. Sometimes, if I find out later that there was something right in front of my nose and I was looking past it all the time, I will hear my mother's voice in the back of in the back of my mind saying, "If it was a snake, it would have bitten you." It's embarrassing to be blind to the obvious. It's embarrassing to be blind to the obvious. Nicodemus had an experience like that as he talked to Jesus. Remember last week, we said that Nicodemus was a prominent Pharisee, a teacher and a leader among the Jews. And he had come to Jesus by night because he was attracted, he was drawn By the teaching of Jesus and the signs, the miracles that Jesus was performing, he was looking for answers. He was troubled in his soul. He wanted answers, and if it were a snake, it would have bitten him, because the answer himself was sitting right in front of him. Nicodemus was an expert in God's law. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, which many commentators think that meant that he was a prominent teacher among the Jews, a well-known teacher among the Jews. And as a Pharisee and as an expert and a teacher of the law, he was meticulous in keeping the law, at least outwardly, and in performing all the religious duties and rituals and ceremonies that it spelled out. But he lacks something. Jesus and John the Baptist have been declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And somehow Nicodemus, in spite of all his efforts, in spite of all his expertise, in spite of all of the honor given to him, wasn't sure that he would be a part of this kingdom. As we saw last week, Jesus cut right to the heart of the issue, even before Nicodemus could ask one of his questions. He said to Nicodemus that if he wanted to see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God, he had to be born from above. He had to have a second birth, that he, even in spite of all appearances, was spiritually dead before God and without hope. Unless God would intervene in his life and give him a spiritual birth, take the stone cold dead heart out of his out of him and and replace it with a heart of flesh that could see and want to enter and enter the kingdom of God. And so we pick up the reading here in verse nine this morning where Nicodemus hears this and he says to Jesus, how can these things be? And it's at this point that Jesus rebukes him for being an expert in God's law, but being blind to its central message. He knew the Old Testament inside and out, but he missed the central point of the Old Testament. He, in essence, says to Nicodemus, you've been studying God's word all your life and the truth is there, but you have not found it. If it was a snake, it would have bitten you. It's possible for all of us, even those of us who have experienced this second spiritual birth. It is possible for us in our sinfulness, in our hardness of heart, to spend a lot of time in the Word and miss or forget what the central message is. It's even worse when we fail to spend significant time in the Word of God. So I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I don't know if you've never understood it, or if you have understood it, but you've forgotten it, or wherever you might be spiritually, we're going to look at that central message as Jesus describes it for Nicodemus this morning. There is a Pharisee in all of us that keeps rearing its ugly head, trying to win approval with God and with man by good works and religiosity. We need to be reminded of the central truth that Christ came to bring to us. Jesus uses one well-known incident from the Old Testament history of Israel to show Nicodemus how he had missed the message. He picks up, he uses a, a picture of salvation from the book of Numbers. He alludes to it here in verse fourteen. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, if you don't know the story or need to be refreshed on the story, this takes place near the end of that period of Israel's history that we call the wilderness wanderings, where they had been delivered by God's grace from slavery and bondage and suffering and destruction in Egypt. And through the Exodus had been led out of Egypt, had been led to Mount Sinai, had received the old covenant, received the law of God, had received the tabernacle. They had been formed as God's people, as the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And then they had been sent on their way to the promised land, but in their faith, their lack of faith, I should say, they had been unwilling to obey God's command to go in and conquer the promised land. So God, in judgment, declared that that generation would spend its time wandering in the wilderness and die before entering the promised land. And it's towards the end of that time. And you know what that time was like, if you know that history at all. It was a time of repeated rebellion and complaining and resisting the will of God. And again, God, and again, and again, God was patient with them. And as we come to chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, God's patience has been tried and tested to its limit. Their cup of iniquity was about full. And one more time, they complain about God not sufficiently providing for their physical needs, not enough water, not enough bread. Now this is in spite of the fact that every morning, miraculously, God was providing this flaky white miracle substance that they could make bread out called manna. And just to show the attitude of their heart, let me quote to you exactly what they said in the midst of their complaint. They said, we loathe this worthless food. They hated the provision of God, this miraculous manna. Now in my own sin, I'm sympathetic because I do that kind of complaining all the time. It reminds me of the old Keith Green song. If you remember Keith Green, a Christian singer from a couple of decades back, he had a song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? And the whole song was about this complaining nature of the Israelites. And he talks about, in part of the song, he throws out the dialogue between Moses and the Israelites, and he quotes them as saying, manna again? We're tired of manicotti and filet of manna and manna burgers and Bamana bread. You know, and he goes on with this. And, and it's very funny, but it resonates with us how we get tired and we complain about God's provision. But there's nothing funny about the root attitude behind that. It's a despising of the grace and the provision of God. It's spitting in the face of a patient God who endures our sin, it's claiming that God is not good and that he doesn't give us what we need. And so, finally, as a judgment, God sends into their midst, we don't know how many, but you get the sense it was a massive amount of what's called fiery serpents. They were probably called fiery in the original language because either one or two reasons, either because the the venom stung so much when they were bitten, or speaking of the high fever that the venom caused, which led inevitably to death. And so as the people are writhing in pain and as they're dying all around the camp, they Are brought under conviction. They they confess their sin. They repent of their sin. They come to Moses. They ask Moses to go to God and to plead for grace and mercy. And God responds by telling Moses to do an odd thing, to take bronze and construct a model of one of those fiery serpents and take that model of a fiery serpent that bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up in the midst of the camp above the people as they writhe on the ground in pain and tell them if only they will believe God's word and look to that serpent they will be healed and they will live that's the incident that Jesus is alluding to here and he says Nicodemus if you could only see, you'd understand that the whole message of the Old Testament is summed up in that one incident. That that bronze serpent was somehow a shadow of why he had come and what he was about to do. It was a picture of the way of salvation. And so Jesus makes it explicit. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is what the Old Testament was about. This is what all of scripture is about. This is what all of history is about. That the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That actually is the key verse in this passage. Because what follows after verse 15 is just an explanation of that verse. What did Jesus mean when he said that? It's interesting, even though John 3.16 is probably the best known verse in all of Scripture, you might be surprised to hear that most commentators believe that it shouldn't be in red letters. You know what the red letters mean. Probably not a great thing, but they try to tell us which words were actually spoken by Christ. The danger is that we add greater weight to the red letters when all of it is God's word. But the red letters, as you'll notice in, I think, every translation probably in front of you, goes all the way down to verse 21, the entire passage we read. But every reliable commentator I checked this week, just to double check, every reliable commentator I know believes that the red letter should stop at the end of verse 15. Because they believe that that was the last statement that Jesus makes to Nicodemus that's recorded. And that everything from verse 16 on is actually the apostle John giving his inspired explanation of what Jesus was saying. Now, it's really a moot point, isn't it? Because it doesn't really matter whether Christ spoke the words directly or whether the spirit of Christ inspired John to write the words later. Either way, it's the word of Christ. So I'm not really meaning to make a major point here. But it is interesting that verse 16, as familiar as it is, is really just an explanation of what Jesus meant in verse 15. How do sinners get into God's kingdom? And what Jesus is alluding to here, what as John describes it, we think here at the, at the end of this passage, is that it all started with an agreement. It all started with a covenant that was established in heaven before the universe was made. Before the universe was made, only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed. And as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons, one God, as they met together in eternity past, before creation, and discussed what to do about the fall of man, the sin that would enter into creation, and I'm not going to enter into all the mysterious understandings of God's eternal decree and how it all fits with this, but we do know that a plan was put in place before the world was created to bring about this salvation so that God's people could spend eternity in God's kingdom in the presence of God.